and welcome aboard the Battleship Retention. I am Scott Nye, and I am back. <laughs> I'm David Bax, and I am uh, still here. Um, Can't get rid of him. Yeah, like uh, like uh, Joaquin Phoenix in his rap career. I'm still here, right? Isn't that what that was called? Uh, yeah, that's what that was called. <laughs> not to be confused, of course, with uh, I'm Not There or... Oh, there's, I feel like there's another movie around that time that had. Oh like, well, there's um, uh, oh, uh, I was never really here yes. or something like that. Yeah, which is or another Walking yeah. Phoenix movie, if I'm remembering if yeah. titles correctly. Yeah, but uh, I, I never saw I'm Still Here, and I know. Oh it's no, like, sorry, but, that was you were never really here, which sort of response to like yeah. I'm Still Here. Yeah. Um, so I never saw I'm Still Here, and I know it's like funny that. It's like a fake documentary about Joaquin Phoenix being a rapper, but I also can't get out of my head that the like allegations against Casey yeah. Affleck came during the production of that movie. And that that's always what I'll associate it with because I haven't seen the movie. Yeah. So I think that story came out. At least I didn't hear about that story until well after I'm still here came out, which is all by way of clearing myself of saying, I really like I'm still here. <laughs> um, if you know, like, <laughs> right yeah. kind of like conceit of it uh it plays very well and there's a lot of really funny stuff in it um and joaquin phoenix is a super dedicated actor so he may you know can make it work um yeah and he is i mean just a real life oddball which i like yeah completely um uh all right um well you know what uh i never um i don't have any complaints because i never watched the trailer for i'm still here but say you had watched the trailer for i don't know danny boyles yesterday which i and, do every day <laughs> and you saw anna de armas uh in it i'd um, be very intrigued deep, deep waters on armas and then you'd be very disappointed to go to the theater and oh, find no. that she's not she's not in the movie at all and i went uh, to the theater and everything <laughs> well um i never saw yesterday uh actually um but uh yeah listeners are Keaton, they know what we're talking about that that a couple of people like sued because they rented yesterday on vod because they wanted to see an Ana de armas movie um and uh uh she's not in it uh and weirdly i guess the ruling came down that like that does count as false advertising i guess or something like that, like that. you look like you had a clarification for me scott Okay. One uh, note on oh. that sort of it. What's up? Ah, Sorry, you froze, but it could be on my end. We had the same problem with Ian last week. Hooray. Um, <laughs> yeah, no. Um, it, that wasn't a ruling. The motion could proceed on First Amendment grounds that um, the uh, suit had merit, but not that there was not that okay. it's now illegal for studios to put anything in the trailer that isn't there but it is interesting that's gotten that far even um because yeah i mean anyone with even a cursory knowledge of film production knows that they rarely cut the trailer but you know when they have a final lock of the movie especially for a movie i mean yesterday isn't a huge movie but um even a movie with that size like it's pretty common that you're cutting you know pretty i mean especially in digital distribution era pretty much right up until you're getting ready to premiere Mm -hmm. um i know like recently there were a ton of shots in 
the trailer for Invisible Man, the newer one um, that weren't in the movie. Um, going back further, I remember seeing... So back in the days of like things being distributed on a film, you'd sometimes get trailers that just stuck around because they just had those prints around and like didn't get the prints for the newer trailers and had just something before the movie. So I remember seeing the trailer for Anchorman well after the movie had come out. And there's so oh, yeah. much of the trailer for Anchorman that was never, including like entire plot lines that they cut into a whole separate movie. Yeah. <laughs> it was still yeah. in the trailer. So yeah, it'd be uh, a real... Actually, well, I just, the reason it's on my mind actually is because I just, uh, you and I, it was your second viewing my first, you and I saw Damien Chazelle's Babylon the other night mm-hmm. and uh, I uh, loved it and um, went home and because I generally try to avoid trailers, I hadn't seen the trailer. So I was like, let me see how they how they tried to sell this thing and notice that there's a ton of shots. I mean, there's a, it's a very quick cut trailer, but there's a, a bunch of shots in that trailer that I don't remember seeing in the movie. There's a shot of like Margot Robbie in like a baseball Jersey that like, I don't remember that happening in, in the movie. No. And so that's, that's kind of what got, got me thinking about this uh, again. And then I, re- I remembered, I don't know if you remember the trailer for infinity war Avengers, infinity war. Um, there's a, plot point in infinity war where uh bruce banner can't get the hulk to come out right right but to keep that under wraps they actually like right posited the whole like banner as the hulk into a shot in the movie that he's that it, that bruce banner is in but it's not the hulk in yeah uh, just to keep that under wraps i i wonder how that would uh fly well under the the uh precedent this might be setting yeah, I would. Th- I think Marvel does that for quite a few movies, or at the very least, just like edits characters out of certain shots, um, because they had, are so reliant on like cameos these days. And they did it in um, uh, a year later in Endgame with uh, Black Widow's hair, because there's a whole thing that she like changes her hair during that five five year gap in the okay. movie. And in the in the trailer, they like digitally like made it look like she had her same hair. So strange. I know, right? <laughs> I've been thinking recently about like the box office performance of Avatar, which was not like overwhelmingly grand on its first week, which is the same with the first Avatar as well. Um, and kind of, well, no, Top Gun had a big opening weekend, but like had stronger legs. Whereas Marvel stuff tends to fall very quickly. And so much of like Marvel's box office draw is built around expecting people to care about whatever surprises they have in store. Mm-hmm. Um and whatever cameos they, that people don't want to see spoiled because really like that's all they have left you know there's no the emotional stakes of the movies are only going to get so high the mm-hmm. chances they're going to take are only going to be so great so it's all about seeing like what tiny little variation will be different this time or what person's going to show up in the new movie that they didn't put in the trailer and that seems to be like how they're juicing their entire box office these days yeah, I definitely got that impression with Doctor Strange too, which I yeah. I know like I know certain like Raimi fans were like happy that like there was a fair amount of Raimi in it, but all I could see was how much Kevin Feige there was in it. And there's a huge sense of that with multiple verse of madness where like like Chiwetel Ejiofor is almost like the like the uh circus ringleader like yeah. announcing each like cameo as they come out yeah that scene uh, took forever i was like yeah time for a bathroom break in here and Can like I yeah and legs? It, it that that scene only makes sense if you were in the mindset you're yeah. talking about sure. i like i love that we started talking about trailers and 
Thunder shows Marvel bashing again. Well, you know, that's the kind of thing will happen. So I think yeah. others, well, then it just like, it, not that this is like something that still happens today because budgets are so tight, but I always like the tradition of shooting stuff just for the trailer and like even shooting like entire separate scenes that were never going to be in the movie. I mean, to keep it like Marvel focused, there was that first Marvel Spider-Man trailer for the very first Spider-Man movie that yeah. Um, yeah. they literally had to pull because it was like set around the Twin Towers. Yeah. Um, but like that kind of stuff, I always thought was super cool. And I wish more people did that period. Um, but now maybe, you know, yeah. not that I think this lawsuit has all that much merit, but I think even just like the idea that it would upset that much of the audience to be like, well, that scene wasn't even in the movie, I think would kind of cool their jets. Plus like just wanting to save money. Yeah. Um, do you remember the, the somewhat famous trailer for the minus man? Did you I ever see this movie? Oh, I never saw it. It's like a, a 1999, like Owen Wilson, like serial killer thriller, I think. Okay. Um, and the trailer has no footage from the movie. The trailer is a guy and a girl on a date. It starts with them coming out of the movie. And it's a short film about them walking around the city, spending all night talking about the movie. <laughs> and then it has that's this awesome. like shock. It has this like shock ending. That's like funny. Yeah, I don't yeah. want to give away, but uh, it's, yeah, it's very cool. Um, yeah. And then like going way, way back, there's the, the psycho trailer. That's just Alfred yeah. Hitchcock giving you a tour of the Bateman house, uh, which is a, a very funny trailer. He's Did you see the Bateman uh, house. Um, the, the, um, the Bates house. Sorry. Uh, I was thinking of American psycho, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Bates. No, I, I just got to be the listener calling you out, you know, for them. Um, oh no, yeah. Well, I, yeah. Uh, huh. I wonder if there's any reason that, uh, uh, what's his fuck named, uh, Patrick Bateman. Was it, was it a psycho reference to go from Bates? Oh, to Bateman? maybe. Um, why am I drawing a blank on his name? Cause everyone hates him now. Um, uh, the guy who wrote uh, Brady Snell. Yeah. Yeah. I read American psycho. Um, how was it? I mean, it's like one of those things where it's like, wow, you set out to do this and you did that. And like, there's, I guess I'm not going to lie and pretend there's not something impressive about the sort of like rigor of, of the okay. thing. And how like, cause the whole conceit of the book is that Patrick, it's like all in the first person. And so, you know how in the movie, he's always like talking about business cards or he's talking about suits or he's yeah. talking about, you know, Huey Lewis in the news. So like each chapter will be a thing like that. And then everyone, and, and there'll be like these meticulous descriptions of things. And then every once in a while, one of the things the chapter is a meticulous description of is a horrible, like sexually violent right. murder. So like everything is in the same tone and it's, so it's like weird and there's something impressive about it, but uh, I wouldn't recommend reading it. I would never read it again sure. uh, of the, handful of very snow's novels i've read i think less than zero is the the best but uh i haven't read any later stuff because he sort of uh became a lightning rod yeah, he all right he's dull <laughs> uh all right well um that's enough talk about trailers which you talk about for two seconds and then went all over the place <laughs> um 
I want to tell you real quick about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Uh, I know Tyler and I generally use them each and every day of our lives. Uh, today, I've been spending a lot of um, the first week uh, and probably it'll go longer than a week of, of the year sort of like revisiting or catching up on uh, some of the most acclaimed metal albums of the year. Um, so one I was actually revisiting right up until we started recording um, is an album called Death Western by a band called Spirit World. And the uh, the album title is not a clever name. This is like, this is a, uh, a, a sort of a hardcore metal album, but that also has a lot of twinges of country music and and the 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 artwork looks like a spaghetti western type of thing it's like a it's a whole uh i'm gonna say motif i'm gonna avoid the word gimmick i'm gonna say motif um but the music uh rocks really hard and uh it's a really great album um and it sounded great on my tweaked audio.com earbuds tweaked audio.com is where you go no sorry they're available at a low low price at tweaked audio.com but if you use the offer code pretension at checkout you get one third off that low low price and no shipping charges so uh please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way (laughs) maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Scott? What's up? We're back from our break. Let's get into it, shall we? This is kind of the official kickoff in many ways of our... Yeah, 2022 wrap up, and we'll take a little break, you know, and I'll do some Sundance stuff in the next couple months. It'll, it'll really like uh, next couple. Weeks, it'll, it'll really start again in earnest in February. But in the past, we have started the year doing your top ten of the previous year um, for a couple of reasons. We're not doing that this year, um, and we'll get to that in the weeks to come. I'm I'm sure. So to fill that gap i thought we would do what a lot of people uh on on film twitter have been doing and uh count down our sort of favorite discoveries uh, you know i'm older movies we saw for the first time this year yeah uh now i i gave myself some ground rules but i'm kind of curious oh, to hear hear what yours were did you did you have any rules you set out for yourself um, no, I kind of just more for my own convenience, didn't include any Godard movies in this because we talked about all of those for a good deal of time. Um, but suffice to say, like his work cinema, uh, self-portrait in December and I had one. Oh yeah. And praise of love. I kind of had in mind as like big mm-hmm. major discoveries during that process, but you could hear all of my thoughts on those in our gigantic episode. Um, other than that, though, I don't think I had any ground rules. I partially because I just didn't watch as many movies this past year as I right. have in years past. So it's, it was a lot easier of a list to sift through than it might have been if we did it 
last year, definitely the year before the first pandemic year, I watched over 500 movies. So that would have been a much more daunting challenge. But yeah. in 2022, I probably only watched about 120 or so movies that were new to me, maybe a hundred, even down to a hundred, depending on how okay. many rewatches I did. But um, yeah, so it was a fairly easy list to throw together and not have to create like a structure for, my, for myself. Uh, okay. Well, let me my ground there. My first, I, I had two major rules, and there are rules that fall into that. The first major rule was to spread it around. So, you know, I watched a bunch of Godard for our episode. I watched a bunch of James Jimmy Cowan movies for for that episode. A bunch of other stuff for these profiles. I li- limited myself to one movie per mm-hmm. profile research. Um, I also um, limited myself to one movie from TCM Fest because I figured. I could do a whole list of great movies I saw at TCM Fest, and also a recording of that already exists. Like we already talked at length about about those. Um, which brings me to my second rule, which was the emphasis on the word discovery. So okay. I intentionally removed two things. I removed like things that are blind spots. Like I watched Lilies of the Fields for the first time this year and I loved it, but it's also like, no one's going to be going like adding Lilies to the field to the letterbox <laughs> watch list because I mentioned it. Like that's already a well-known movie, you know? So like when we get to uh, like, okay, listeners know I said my new favorite Godard movie was La Chinois, but I didn't, La Chinois is not the Godard movie I put on this list because it seems like it didn't seem like as much of a discovery to me, just something I was catching up with. Mm. So, um, so I tried to avoid the things that are, uh, already widely understood to be good and that I just caught up with, which the, and I also just as a rule across the board, if it's in the criterion collection, I'm not, I didn't <laughs> not putting in my list because again, criterion collection as we saw with the sight and sound list over half of them are like on the criterion channel like there's so many great things on there that i feel like a movie just being in the criterion collection already kind of argues for itself and doesn't need me to argue for it you know i considered putting some stuff from because i watched the whole like third world cinema project and saw some Mm. really great stuff in in there like lucia and uh soleil o uh especially but um so I considered putting those, but I was like, no, I, uh, setting this rule, I had to stick to it. No criterion. Um, I so, actually don't have any criterion stuff either, but that's pure coincidence. I didn't, uh, didn't set out for that. Okay. Um, but yeah, weirdly, uh, excuse me. I don't know why my voice just cracked. <laughs> <laughs> um, as a result, I guess I watched so much criterion stuff that I only have one movie on this list that I saw as a result of it being a relatively recent Blu-ray release. Sure. Uh, um, which if I just like counted down all the new to me, older movies that I watched, uh, uh, this year, a lot of them would be, uh, newish, you know, discs that were released in the last couple of years, but, um, too many of those are criterion. Uh, oh, also, and I just, this is always my personal rule for any sort of discoveries list, um, 25 years uh, at least. So 1997 oh. or older nah. is, is a, a, a year, a, 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 a rule that I put for myself. Um, weirdly, the only movie I think that really like came close to being on this list that was newer than 1997, and this is more of a surprise than a discovery, 
uh casey lemon's the caveman's caveman's valentine <laughs> was a movie okay. that i like i remembered it coming out and i remember it getting kind of panned um for being like silly and overall which it kind of is um but uh seeing it especially seeing it at the arrow on 35 millimeter sure like it was such a trip and is uh low-key one of my favorite like ne- not new favorite neo-noir films from that era because it's basically a noir film in which the lead character happens to be uh schizophrenic and and uh delusional <laughs> um, right on I, I mean i guess within that vein it it might be worth restating it's something I mentioned on the show before, which is that I just tend not to watch movies from within the past five years that aren't part of like the current release year. So once we get past a year, like that year's just closed to me for five years, just because I'm sick of it. Um, <laughs> I mean, always so- wanted to do an episode about like, like have you me and tyler just go through our like weird self-imposed rules like that but it's not even a rule for me it's like right. a habit like i wouldn't like purposely not watch a movie it's just like i yeah. just don't care enough to want to watch a movie that recent um but i do have the most recent movie i have on here is from 2008 okay uh well i will start with a movie that i should have put 1991 um this is a movie that got a um i think from film movement it got a uh a, a restoration and a brief theatrical as often happens with the film movement restorations they get a brief theatrical release and then i sure. think there has since been a blu-ray release or is coming this is so long ago there must have been one right now but uh 1991 ang lee's pushing hands um never seen I had, it. yeah i had never seen it uh or really it wasn't one of the early ang lee's that were like on my radar uh either but um it's so it's about a um i'm trying i'm trying to remember because it's been almost a year since i watched it i'm trying to remember where in i think it's in new york state i can't remember exactly where but um there's a chinese man who has come to america married a, a white american woman and then his father who is now widow a widower and retired has come to move in with them kind of against his will so he's really the main character is this this um um this older man living with his son um and the wife that he does not like and he's like it, it as often happens with the best Ang Lee movies it walks a number of tonal lines that like it's like there's a version of this movie that's like a, you know, Chinese American version of grumpy old men. And it's not that he's not like a lovable cantankerous old man. He is like kind of a jerk, but also you sympathize with him because he's so sad and so out of his element, but also the movie doesn't like avoid, um, the the broad comedy of a grumpy old man type of thing there's he finally like starts to uh find his place in this world when he starts teaching tai chi classes that's where the term uh the title oh, comes sure. from push, pushing hands and he like meets another woman who it's like at the the chinese american cultural center or whatever he teaches tai chi classes and this other woman teaches like uh um dumpling making classes okay. and they have this like romance but also like the tai chi scenes are like really almost over the top funny of him, like almost getting to the point of like Wusha of him, like pushing someone and then going like, Whoa, like flying all the way across the room. Yeah. But the movie's also so like down to earth and, and, and bittersweet. And there's a, the, there's a sadness and a loneliness. I know you like, as you've said before, you like movies about lonely people. I sure um, do. 
and Ang Lee, when he's on on point, really gets that um, that sense of uh, sadness and and yearning. You know, if you look at anything from Brokeback Mountain to Sense of Sensibility, uh, the Ice Storm, like there's a lot of sadness and loneliness in in those movies. And so, pushing hands while fitting, checking the marks of like a kind of like broad family culture clash comedy, um, also has all of the other great. Ang Lee stuff. It was definitely. Uh, I, mean, I can't say every one of these is a. The whole point of this is it's a, this, <laughs> this episode is about discovery. So I can't say I had to teach. I have to remind myself not to say every time like it was a discovery for me. Yeah, that's the point. That's so, the episode. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. I'd, I'd definitely be intrigued to see it. I. I was looking at kind of Ang Lee movies I had seen. I have seen The Wedding Banquet, which was the movie he made after. Um, Pushing Hands. Okay. Um, and like that a great deal. I but I haven't seen Drink Man Woman. I. I'm just trying to remember if I've seen Sense Sensibility. It's one I feel like I have, but I'm really not sure. Um, oh, yeah. I, I, uh, I need to rewatch Sense and Sensibility because I don't know if you saw there was a thing going around Twitter a bit that was like, take this personality quiz and it will tell you what uh, okay. um, fictional characters you're most like. And like sure. it was like, post your top four. And mine was like, I was severely like owned by this because it was <laughs> like my top three were Waylon Smithers, um uh Cameron Fry from Ferris oh, sure. Bueller's Day Off, uh Lane Price from Mad Men. <laughs> and then my fourth one was um Alan Rickman's character from Sense and Sensibility, oh. uh, which I remember him being like the other one's kind of a stick in the mud. Sure. But I haven't seen Sense and Sensibility since I was in high school. So I need to watch it again to see like because I definitely I don't know about Wayland Smithers, but I definitely see myself in Cameron Fry and Lane uh so um i need to rewatch sense and ability to see if i see myself in alan rickman's character well you do like to play by the rules david as we know you have a lot of rules yes you, well you like to play by your own rules that's really what it comes down to yeah yeah all right yeah, that's true <laughs> my own rules that i make up and enforce upon myself and no one else exactly and uh it imposes order on my life but also gives me a severe amount of stress that is <laughs> in, in comprehensible to anyone else. That's, that's uh, very much. That's very lame price. Yeah. Many, many years of therapy have taught me to at least recognize all of these things. <laughs> if not actually do anything about them. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, well, speaking of rules that you had that I did not have, I definitely uh, have a, a very famous movie. My 10th slot here. Um, but I'd never seen ordinary people before the famous Robert Redford, best picture winning, uh, film. Um, we watched it as part of the mostly weekly movie night that uh, I do with our friends Josh and Megan. Um, and it turned out a lot of us hadn't seen Ordinary People. And I'm really glad I did. And I'm glad that it took me this long to get around to it because I think like most young cinephiles, I was like had a grudge against it for beating Raging Bull at the Oscars or whatever. I still like Raging oh, Bull right. a good deal more and still think it probably deserved it more, but like Ordinary People is an extraordinary movie. And I don't know if I would have like given it the same chance if I saw it when I was like 18 or whatever. Um, but it's kind of like real big drama stuff. You know, it's about a family dealing with the accidental death of one son, the attempted suicide of another, the other being kind of the film's main character. Mm-hmm. Um, has a great cast on Sutherland, Mary Tyler Moore, Judd Hirsch, Timothy Hutton, Elizabeth McGovern, M.M. Walsh, among, I'm sure, others that I just got tired of typing and didn't note down my notes here. Um, and probably it's not, I was trying to look around if it was an influence on Kenneth Lonergan. It seems it, 
inescapable that it would be because it has almost exactly the same ending as like half of his stuff. Oh, but yeah. um, it's also got that same sense of being a very grounded story, but also having, you know, really elaborate dialogue and characters who have a very clear sense of who they are and how to discuss that, but also have a difficult time kind of connecting with one another over those understandings of themselves. And, but it's also super funny. I, I can't remember some of the lines that are really killing us, but um, it's just got a number of just stopping your tracks, laugh lines in the same way that like, you can watch something like Manchester by the Sea, which is like a devastating movie, but there are still, there'll be tons of lines that are like, yeah, the whole experience of watching it makes it feel funnier than a lot of comedies you get to see. Um, and this very much has that as part of it. Um, yeah, it won number of Oscars, I think best picture and screenplay, I imagine, um, at least one acting award. Now I need to look it up. Um, all of which I, Pulligan is well-deserved. And I kind of want to now check out more Alvin Sargent written stuff as well, because I was looking at his filmography. I haven't seen a ton of it, but like the stuff that I have seen, um, obviously the Spider-Man movie, total masterpiece. Um, but um, like he wrote Bobby Deerfield, which is this great late seventies Al Pacino starring melodrama that Sidney Pollock directed that I absolutely love. And I totally didn't connect the two until I was kind of looking at it all together. And now I, I kind of want to check out the rest of the stuff he did kind of, in that same era. Um, and it made me respect, I think Robert Redford more as a director who I hadn't to that point thought too much of. I know you and Tyler are big quiz show fans. Yeah. Um, I started to watch quiz show many, many years ago and we'd probably be down to give it another shot, but I remember getting about 15 minutes in and being like, I don't know, it's just game shows. <laughs> like I couldn't like <laughs> make myself care about it. Oh. Um, and other than that, I think the only other Redford directed movie I've seen is Lions for Lambs, which is like, you know, kind of a big whiff. Um, but this got me more intrigued to kind of check out some other stuff in his, his own filmography. You're making me want to revisit Ordinary People because um, I went through, I liked it a lot. I loved it when I first saw it. Yeah. And then I think I got into this, you know, um, snobby thing of seeing of, of seeing it as like, overly uh i don't know what's the word i'm looking for um melodramatic in a bad way um sure in in but uh now you make me want to go back and watch it but i'll say the one thing about ordinary people that has always stuck with me that i've always loved is the cinematography by john bailey um, Oh sure and john bailey it seems to happen if you like look at the careers of cinematographers like people will be like one of the big names in cinematography and then kind of like, I don't know what happens. They get like Peter out. And so he like, I think he's retired now, but he like ended his career making like these sort of like, um, uh, crappy, like, uh, studio B movies, like big miracle and stuff like that. But at the time he was like ordinary, he was going back and forth between like art house stuff. Like he shot Mishima, a life in four chapters. Uh, he shot, um, a brief history of time, which is the, um, Errol Morris documentary about yeah. uh, Stephen Hawking, but he was also doing like groundhog day, um, in the line of fire is another movie that looks great. Um, I don't know if you've seen that or when the last time you've seen it, but no, uh, in, the line, I, in the line of fire rules. I almost watched it, uh, sort of after Wolfgang Peterson died, but, um, mm. and I watched something else and then didn't get around to catching it. Uh, John Bailey also yeah. will, will insist that he shot more of days of heaven than credited cinematographer Nestor Almondros. Oh, he like had a stopwatch out during a screening one time. I was like, yeah, I shot more of that movie <laughs> um, because that it was just a troubled production. It went on so long that they had to replace cinematographers. But 
Almondros still got the credit for it because he started out and kind of set the template for the movie. Um, but by the time they finished it, yeah, John Bailey had shot more of it. Yeah, I mean, that same year he shot American Gigolo. The same year as Ordinary mm-hmm. People, he shot American Gigolo for Paul Schrader. Um, but yeah, that's that cinematography arc you're talking about is very strange. I The biggest example I always think of is the fact that Vilmos Zygmunt ended up shooting 24 episodes of the Mindy Project. Which um, is <laughs> <laughs> like, I remember seeing his name pop up in like the first time that happened. I was like, wait, no. But who else would we name that and be a cinematographer? It seemed impossible. Yeah, I just don't know. Like, it's there's like, it never happened to Roger Deakins. I don't think it ever really happened to Conrad Hall. But like, a lot of these cinematographers, I don't know what happens. I don't know how they like. Uh, I, I don't know. They're like, uh, they're like first wives. <laughs> <laughs> I also think I don't know. I could see them also just getting to be really weird people who like can't exist on normal movie sets, and they relied on being on these like great auteurist visions that. Right. Like had these troubled productions and like <laughs> they could only exist in that mode and just to like show up and work. Although Zygmunt did shoot a number of uh, Woody Allen movies, which is the ultimate like show up and work job. Right. Uh, all right. Um, we're doing 10 of these, so we probably shouldn't take yeah. this long with each one. Uh, my number nine won't take that long, but um, of all of the uh, Sydney Poitier vehicles that I saw in, in preparation for that profile episode, that I did with Aaron Newworth almost a year ago. Um, the biggest discovery for me was uh, Guy Green's A Patch of Blue. I don't know who Guy Green is. I look at his filmography. I don't know. It's the only one of his movies I've ever seen. Um, but uh, I think this one um, got an Oscar nominee. I can't remember now because uh, it's been a year since we talked about it. But um, It was nominated for five Oscars. Five Oscars. To, and yeah, to be nominated for five Oscars and I guess win none. And then I uh, did win yeah. supporting actress for Shelley Winters. Oh, okay. She did win. Oh, that's yeah. great. Um, and I guess it's part, I guess part of a big part of this word discovery uh, has to do with surprise. And so I'm watching all of these Sydney Poitier movies and so many of them are these like, and even the good ones are often these like social issue driven, right. like morality tales in which he has to represent like the, um, the, the, the most moral and decent black man in the world or in the country, at least, yeah. you know, uh, and patch of blue is a much more, um, down to earth character driven movie. um, in in which uh, Sidney Poitier just plays a, a a man who lives. It's been a year. I think he lives with his brother uh, in Los Angeles and uh, befriends in MacArthur Park. Um, which that's another great thing about Apache Blue is that like it's like um, MacArthur Park, like Alvarado, like that, like that neighborhood as it existed and it's all this location photography along Alvarado and in the park. And, um, it's a really cool, like document of, um, a part of Los Angeles that has gone through a lot of changes in the time since this movie. Um, yeah. Uh, but, um, uh, so he, he just cuts to the park every day or he has his, has his lunch in the park every day and he meets this blind girl, um, and sort of becomes friends with her, and then sort of we we sort of we get uh, 
picture of her home life, uh, which is not like, uh, um, shined up movie version of like a dysfunctional family. It's like mm. Shelley Winters is like plays a, just a truly awful mother figure to this, the, uh, to, to this woman. Like the, the reason that this is a minor spoiler, the reason the girl is blind is because Shelley Winters blinded her. Oh, um, wow. Not on purpose, but like through a glass at her face and blinded her when she was a girl. And that's the kind of life that she lives. It, uh, she lives. So, um, I, I, I think, um, I found so much of this movie to be, and I guess this is going back to what I was saying about surprise. Like so much of it is feels not programmatic, feels instinctive, um, and and feels uh, curious about the characters as opposed to like instructing the audience about the characters. Uh, that that um, yeah, I'll say it again. This was a, a big surprise. That's why it's on the list. Okay. All right. Um, I wasn't taking note of its other nominations and it was during a brief three-year period where Jerry Goldsmith could be nominated for best music score substantially original. I'm very unclear as to what the <laughs> delineation there. Oh yeah. Is either you could either compete for that or adaptation or treatment. So like okay. the same year that was nominated, uh, the sound of music won for best yeah. score because it's, at least semi-adapted interesting oscars are weird as hell all right yeah. my number nine switching genre gears big time uh going with 1998's wild things you ever seen wild things david never saw it so wild things is obviously most famous for uh its rampant nudity and sex scenes which actually aren't as plentiful as you might expect given its reputation um oh. they're there and they're like clearly very uh, proud of themselves and like laying it all out there for you. But it's not the key like drive of the movie. And there's not like, they're not kind of shoehorned okay. in at every turn the way that I kind of expected going into it. It's mostly just like a really good rip roaring, very complex, densely plotted constant twist and turns thriller to the point that it seems to run out of road to explain its twist and turns and literally has a sequence of scenes during the credits that fill in the gaps that it couldn't fill in during the course of the actual movie um so this is just like packed to the gills pure pulp plotting and it's really well told really well performed by kevin bacon matt dillon nev campbell and denise richards most prominently and uh Sporting cast kind of filled up by Teresa Russell, Robert Wagner, and Bill Murray, um, all of whom know exactly the kind of movie they're in and are very happy to make this, like, I don't know, super saturated, like neon Florida set, super pulpy film that is, yeah, at various turns, sexy as hell. Um, so I've been trying to catch up with more of these kind of like 90s erotic thrillers, some of which are more respectable than others. This falls in the rare camp where like I have zero um I guess intellectual def uh defense of it the way I do for like basic instinct or fatal attraction mm -hmm. which I think like get at some real human shit amidst their uh naughtiness. Wild things is just like a pure pleasure to watch and totally totally rips. All right. Um I should I should put it on my list. Uh, not this list. This list I just made, by the way. Yes. I mean, I, I, I keep a list of like, you know, old 
because I watched it for the first time, but uh, establishing the ground rules, everything laid out, I, I did finish in Tesla's right. I'm wondering if my next, part of the reason why my next movie is on the list is because I happened to have watched Phil Tippett's Mad God last night, mm-hmm. um, which is amazing, by the way. And in a weird way, it kind of reminded me of a movie I'd seen for the first time this year that a lot of people in America, uh, well, not that a lot of people saw it, but most of the people who saw it in America this year saw it for the first time because it had never been released here before. It's a 1984 Romanian animated movie called Delta Space Mission, uh, which uh, it's, a, it's in many ways, it, it feels like it's cashing in on, 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 on something this sort of like, uh, it's clearly inspired by fantastic, um, what is it? Fantastic planet. Um, that's the animated one, right? I was getting, yeah. Fantastic voyage is where they get shrunk down. Right. Yeah. Uh, okay. It's clearly inspired by fantastic planet, but it also just like this post star Wars, like space is cool type of, uh, thing is clearly the reason it exists. But sometimes, you know, uh, when there's not a lot of budget and split, uh filmmakers can go a little wild with what uh their uh with their meager means and that seems to be what happened in some ways with uh, the directors are Kalen Kazan and Mercia Toya um I'm probably saying that both those wrong um but the the plot of the story of the movie to the uh, to the extent that it even matters uh is that it takes place on a new intergalactic spaceship or just a, a fancy like very expensive new spaceship uh that's meant to contact aliens and um a journalist who's skeptical of the waste of resources or whatever has um been sent to the ship or has has gotten herself onto the ship to to sort of write an investigative journalist piece about it but uh as soon as pretty much the second she steps on the ship this movie's only 70 minutes and it wastes no time pretty much the second she's on the ship the ai that runs the ship becomes sentient falls in love with her and spends the rest of the movie chasing her through like alien lands and through the its own the bowels of the own of its own ship and stuff and it just has this like non-stop breakneck for momentum and all in this like kind of psychedelic uh uh animation style um that i feel like we don't you know pixar's wrought a lot of things i like a lot of (laughs) pixar movies but they've wrought a lot of things that i that i um don't that, that i rue which is one of them is it just seems like there's pretty much just one basic established look that animated movies are supposed to have now and it the Pixar movies tend to have a lot of fast motion, but they don't t- because I think they were so from the beginning, so intent on how realistic they could be with their CGI that we've lost some of the psychedelic logic you, you get from older cartoons like, like fantastic planet, but also like, like early Popeye cartoons are so strange. I know. Like, I love them. They have bodies doing things you can't do and like in fantastic or not sorry delta space mission kind of reminded me of of that like that sense of of pre-pixar animation where or, or maybe pre-disnification whatever you want to call it where like the point of it being animated was that anything could happen <laughs> um and and uh, i found the movie just such a blast to watch it's also clearly because this is during the like communist era of romania it's also like clearly like <laughs> 
like propagandistic in some ways like a lot of the dialogue from the the agents or the space officers or cadets or whatever yeah. is them like congratulating one another on having followed protocol <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good yeah uh, but uh what a delight and it's uh there's a there's a new ish um company called deaf crocodile that has been like uh um I don't know if they're doing their masking themselves or just handling the distribution, uh, but the stuff that they've been putting out has been weird stuff like this. There was an awesome movie I saw this year called The Unknown Man of Shane DeGore, uh, which is uh, another weird, weird delight. But uh, Delta Space Mission takes the cake for the Deaf Crocodile movies that I saw. <laughs> what a sentence. Um, yeah, no, it's it's not one I'm familiar with at all. I don't even think I'd heard of it before right now, but now I'm super intrigued looking at some stills from it too all right um my number eight um so in terms of like my, most of the films on my list are pretty mainstream because i've been trying to fill in more mainstream stuff and one of those mm-hmm. is the only clint eastwood movie that i did not see in theaters between the years 2003 to 2021 um and that is uh 2008's changeling um starring angelina jolie and I am generally a fan of both Angelina Jolie and Clint Eastwood. Um, so I was kind of like ashamed of myself for having not seen this. Um, it's really, really great. Um, so it's adapted from a true story um, by screenwriter J. Michael Straczynski, who's like more famous for like science fiction stuff, interestingly. So I don't really know what exactly drew into this project, but I know he wrote, hmm. he did like an unbelievable amount of research. I can't remember ex- like the details of it, but I... Um, I was just reading this like making of production stuff on wiki after seeing the movie several months ago. And yeah, he like completely got completely invested in this. Um, whereas like Clint Eastwood probably like read the script the day before shooting and went to work on it because that's how he works. <laughs> but um, Eastwood's always got a lot of very thoughtful consideration about how he films things and also a certain ruthlessness to it, both of which are very necessary for the story. It's about, a woman whose um, son goes missing. She is a single mother and has to work for a living. And so she leaves him at home one day when she has to go in to her job. And when she gets back, he is gone. The regular person who would kind of babysit him couldn't show up or something like that. There's some series of circumstances. And she was like, okay, I'll only be gone for a couple hours. How much could really happen to him? And sure enough, she gets home and he's missing. And after several months of, um, sort of petitioning the police department to really search for the kid. They do deliver her a child who is not hers, but who the police department insists is hers. And they kind of convince her for at least the first few minutes when she meets him that like, maybe it's just your shock passage of time. You don't recognize him, et cetera. So they get her in there long enough to um, take a photo with the press and um, kind of make a good show of it. And then she spends the next several months and indeed if i recall correctly even years trying to correct that wrong um to the point where the uh police eventually throw her in an asylum to try to shut her up um and it's all wrapped up in surprise surprise movie set in 1928 but yes even then the lapd was super corrupt and um if not more so 
if not more so. And indeed, like most of their efforts were just trying to like save their own image because they'd been getting such bad press. They're like, well, if we can show that we found this woman's kid, then it'll all go away and just made life worse, worse for themselves. Um, she, I remember up- real quick, just to, yeah. sorry to interject, but, um, yeah. I don't know if you've ever taken an esoteric tour. Um, it's a t- tour company in Los Angeles. Oh, no, I know of it, though. It's really specific. Anyway, during one, uh, the tours that I went on, they said something like, we often get asked as LA historians, like, why didn't LA have the mob the way that New York and <laughs> Chicago did? And they're like, not even really joking. They're like, we had the LAPD. Yeah. Like, that kind of was the organized crime of of that era. Yeah. Um, so she ends up teaming up with uh, a reverend played by John Malkovich, who's kind of been on the fore of trying to take down the LAPD or at least um, get them to answer for their various sins uh, that he can. And uh, he helps kind of bring public attention to her case. And that's kind of why it became like a kind of a legendary case that they ended up making a movie about. Um, the eventual unraveling of what happened to the kid gets pretty gruesome. But that's where I mean that like Clint Eastwood is not shy about that aspect of the story either. This is far from a sentimental story, um, but it's very heartfelt and honest and very, very moving in its telling. And it's kind of during that period where Angelina Jolie was at her peak, I think in terms of her commercial potential, but was also taking like a lot of really interesting daring roles um and it was kind of like a good capper on that period um and which i, sh- I wish she would return to more i mean i'm a huge by the sea fan and that was kind of like her last mm-hmm. big kind of great acting work that i at least that i've seen i mean those who wish me dead was like whatever um but other than that it's like she's mostly just doing like kind of family movies but um yeah just a really stellar modern melodrama that has a lot of uh spine behind it uh all right next up for me um this was a restoration um that i think has has since been released on blu-ray but it was um put out by kino lorber i think of a 1994 american movie by director aoka shinzira it's called alma's rainbow and this is a uh it's a coming of age story it's set um it it's set in the time that you know 1994 um uh about a girl who is raised by a single mom who is a like a beauty shop owner i think um okay but she has uh much like emma stone in la la land she has an aunt who's an eccentric <laughs> actress type um and she's clearly pulled a little more in that direction, not necessarily acting, but she wants to dance. She has like a dance crew uh, where she's the only girl in a three person um, dance crew. Uh, and so it's, you know, she's pulled between these various um, or, or these two main like uh, female uh, uh, role models. Um so I, you know, that, that sort of like, I want to do this, but my mom wants me to do this is like a pretty standard coming right. of age type of thing, you know, just like, um, in Coda or whatever, but, uh, there's something, um, so boldly and so specifically, uh, about women and about black women specifically in, in this movie that it, it has such a strong point of view and such a strong look in terms of uh, its lighting and especially it, the costumes are fantastic and, and the way that they um, it's almost like uh, 
I don't know, Comedia dell'arte in the way that like you can tell so much by the people, by each character, um, based on the way they dress. Uh, but they're fantastic costumes. They, they look, uh, they, they look great. There's, um, a lot of very frank, um, uh, talk about sex in both ways. There's, you, you know, um, I can't remember the main character. Is it's not Elma. Elma is oh Rainbow is the main character. That's right, and Elma is her mom. That's right. Okay, that's oh. where the that's where the movie gets gets its title. So, um, like Rainbow is there's a whole plot line that she is, as we tend to say euphemistically, developing, uh, and she doesn't want to be seen like that. Doesn't want to look that we looked at uh, uh, like that. So there's a lot of like um, uh, stuff about her trying to cover up and wear baggy clothes. Um, on the other end though, you've got the beauty shop where there's, I can't remember if he's a handyman or a delivery guy, but basically it's this beauty shop where I, obviously all the employees and all the customers are black women. And they just like, there's these great scenes of them sharing and, and talking, but then it becomes almost like, uh, uh exaggeratedly comedic when this one guy, um, uh, shows up every once in a while and, and every woman just like cannot keep it in their pants. Just like it's uh, every, every, every woman is struck. Uh, so horny by this, this one guy that it's, 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 it's funny. So you, you, you get sort of both ends of, uh, the spectrum of, of, uh, um, sexuality, uh, in the movie. So, uh, yeah, I'm trying to avoid saying it was a surprise or a discovery, but there you go. <laughs> it's out there now. I'm sure you can, you can probably, rent it somewhere but i know there's a blu-ray out there now nice um my number seven uh getting into some art house cred rover Bersan's the devil probably um oh i've seen this one american cinematech through the most feelings um mostly and a little bit of the arrow did a gigantic really admirable Brisson retrospective that unfortunately coincided with me having to stay in new york an extra week um so i wanted to catch most of the uh retrospective but i was only able to catch this one but i'm really glad i did um this was made a few years after four nights of a dreamer and a couple years before l'argent um both which i think i like a little bit more than this but it's very much of that same like piece of like a portrait of nihilism obsession and aimlessness among i would put this one in between the two okay four nights of a dreamer first then this then l'argent interesting um but it's kind of similarly like tackling like just the hopelessness of being young in like broadly, I guess you could say capitalist society or just kind of like a general dead end system where there's not a lot of future there. Um, and so there's a reason why movies like this have lasted because a lot of young people feel the exact same way that today. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways it's just like the nature of being a certain age of getting out into the world and trying to fit into the system but discovering how unjust and ruthless the that real life can be um and yeah i put in this note jay hoverman described it with one sentence a dostoevskin dostoevskin story of a tormented soul presented in a style as manager of medieval illumination which is very on point um the cinematech showed this on film and it looked fantastic it has that kind of like almost holy lighting to it where everything seems a little bit unreal and kind of fits in well with Brisson's style of directing actors um, in terms of staging them and asking for very little in the way of expression. And so uh, 
the lighting and the place the images fall into the story does most of the storytelling for it. And there's something about the like um, monotonous dialogue readings that kind of like speak to the way that these people feel like a little um, like they're just going through the motions of life and not really having any effect on it. While at the same time, like the main character is like this total like ladies band womanizer who like is able to like land every chick. Um, Then there's also this like great scene where like, I can't remember the details of it, but they're on a bus and like different people on the bus are like speaking different sections of kind of a spoken word thing. That's very cool. And so it falls in like, as with most Brisson stuff, a really interesting rhythm that kind of like develops even a larger artistic purpose than um, the specific aims of the story. And yeah, uh, I don't know that I have any other notes about it, but yeah, I was really glad that I finally got around to seeing it. It was obviously like, besides just generally loving Brisson and wanting to see more of his films, the title was always one that attracted me. Um, the mm-hmm. devil comma probably is a very catching title. Um, and yeah, so I'm really glad I got around seeing it. Uh, I saw this, uh, years and years ago at LACMA hmm. on a double, uh, it was the second part of a double bill with Phantom of Liberty. Oh, weird. Yeah. Right. But I guess they're like same era of French. Maybe the movie yeah. was a part of some like retrospective of like early seventies France. I can't remember exactly what it was. Uh, but I do miss seeing movies at LACMA. Well, I mean, now that the Academy Museum's there, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, just down yeah. the block from where that used to be and like yeah. better seating because like those seats at the Bing were always a little uncomfortable. And it's like that kind of rake seating where you get the wrong head in front of you, your night's ruined. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, that's actually where I first saw um, Four Nights of a Dreamer. Kind of speaking of the oh, song yeah. Blackma. Um, yeah, yeah I mean, they I, showed I, I, cool stuff. Oh yeah, they showed great stuff. But like the Academy Museum is unbelievably great programming. If you haven't been there yet, gotta gotta check it out. No, I still haven't actually. All right, um, next up for me, I've been kind of dreading this one because it's um, one of those movies that's uh, uh, I'm not going to be able to really fall back on talking about the plot much because um, cool. <laughs> that's not the kind of movie it is really. Uh, it's called Dream Life. It's from 1972. A Dream Life or La Vie Reveille. Uh, it's written by Mireille Dansereau. Um, and this this restoration was presented by uh, Arbelos, who were uh, very reliable and put out a lot of cool stuff. Um, and uh, this was the first, if I'm if I'm buying the ad, the ad copy, this was <laughs> the uh, first feature directed by a Quebecois woman. First, first female directed French Canadian uh, feature film. Is that how um, you say that? Quebecois. Quebecois. I'm sure you're right. It's just like how would you say it? <laughs> I think I'd always said like because I hadn't. I, I think the first time I encountered that word, I hadn't really thought of Quebec as like a French speaking province or whatever. So I was probably like going like oh Quebecois or whatever. Yeah, no, because they don't say Quebec. It's it's Quebec. Right. Is how you say it, and so I think you would say Quebecois. You're probably think, right. You know what? Uh, French Canadians, let me know if I'm saying it right. Quebecois. Um, uh, anyway, this was also, this was weirdly like a, um, a strong year for early or early features from Canadian women because, uh, Patrick, Patricia Rosemma's, yeah, Patricia Rosemma's, uh, I've heard the mermaid singing, um, 
also got uh, uh, restored, I think, by Kino Lorber this year um, and uh, saw that for the first time. Um, and that's also really great. Uh, came very close to making this list today, actually. But uh, yeah, I'm still like avoiding trying to actually talk about what Dream Life is about. <laughs> it's about two women, young women who work for for a film production company that makes like commercials. Okay. Um, but they want to make something else. They want to live in their dreams and they want to uh make films or make art that allows them to to live in their dreams and so some of the movies seem to actually take place in their in their fantasies a lot of it is about them imagining the perfect man um that, but that's one of those things like uh if you read any like log line of the movie it's like about two young women try to imagine the perfect man and it's like yeah that's part of the movie but like it's weird it's it always seems to be presented as if it's the main thrust. Maybe those people who are writing those little log lines had the same problem I did. It's such a hard movie <laughs> to like put into words. And let's, let's just latch onto this one thing about them uh, fantasizing about the perfect man and trying to realize him in their art and their dreams uh, and make that the story. But um, it's really about, as the title suggests about um, the desire to live outside of reality, live in your dream world. And um, the, pursuit of making things that allow you and others to do that, but also the kind of realization that you're only ever going to get so far mm. with, with doing that, that reality is always going to be there and going to, uh, uh there's going to be times you're going to have to be snatched away from your dream, your dream life. Um, uh, so yeah, a, a worthy, um, uh, uh, a worthy restoration presented by Arbelos, who also speaking of female directed movies that barely made, Really missed this list. Uh, Arbelos also released um, restorations of a couple of er early Nina Menke's films, and I almost put The Bloody mm. Child on on this list. I don't know if you've seen The Bloody Child, Scott, but I think you I would dig not. it. I think I think you would dig it. It's it's a movie that is like based on a true story about um, I think an army or some sort of military officer who murdered who murdered his own wife on the base, but most of the movie is just like the way more like military police than are needed show up at the crime scene where the dead body is and spend most of the movie just like milling around and shooting the shit. <laughs> it's such a strange movie and I really loved it. But uh, there, I, I snuck in another one, but dream life is my number, whatever we're on. Six. Yeah. Uh, Six, yeah. Right. Um, yeah. I was hoping cause herbalist does sometimes post stuff to canopy. I was hoping this movie might be, have been on there, but it is not. Um, I actually don't think it's out yet on Blu-ray because it only just played, the restoration just played actually last month at the Cinematheque. Um, oh, okay. And might still be touring around, but doesn't have any future dates noted. Huh. Yeah. I'll be very interested to see it. Well, the bloody child is on canopy. I just confirmed that. Hey, so. there you go. Well, there hopefully go. dream life will be eventually then too. Yeah um all right my number six getting back into the mainstream i had never seen and had long been desiring to see notting hill so i finally saw notting hill loved it um not only as like a really stellar romantic comedy it's very funny it's very sweet um it has kind of it, as fun as i am around romantic comedies they sometimes go a little too hard with the endings of like showing just how ecstatically happy and that they will definitely be together forever. And you have expected to like, end with them dying at the same time on their deathbeds kind of thing. Like I also saw 13 going on 30 this year, 
which like the victory could well enough have been them getting together, but it has to go to like flash forward to their wedding. It's like, nope, don't worry guys. This isn't just a flash in the pan. <laughs> they also got married. Notting Hill like does that same thing, but it it's ending it, like loops back in with like stuff they'd already discussed in the course of the movie and has this like amazing tracking shot, but that's jumping ahead to the ending. What really um, made it land for me, I think beyond being an excellently executed romantic comedy is that it's also kind of like, a really good portrait of dependency and that feeling of being the one who's more attached to the other person and just of mm-hmm. constantly giving over your life to somebody you're in love with who like reciprocates you in feeling, but maybe not in terms of commitment and how like isolating that becomes for Hugh Grant's character, how it like cuts him off from friends and potential other romantic interests. And it, in some ways it's like a romantic comedy take on, um, the Magum novel of human bondage, which is like one of our favorite books. Um, and it's very much about like that book is much more about the extent to which someone goes through um, and just destroying his life in pursuit of this woman who doesn't care for him, which isn't to say that Julia Roberts doesn't care for Hugh Grant. Of course she does, but um, she has larger concerns in terms of maintaining her career. It's part of a large string of movies around this period where julia roberts just was playing julia roberts and not in like the star way people always say that like tom hanks always plays tom hanks it's like literally the movie wouldn't work if we didn't associate all these things with julia roberts and was like kind of playing against that image as well um this is probably the best duration of it i mean i haven't seen full frontal which is like i think the more direct one but um uh, between this and oceans 12 and to a certain extent like america's sweethearts does this too um this was a really smart integration of that uh whole thing and i think is also just well cut out with general portrait of um friend groups in their 30s trying to like cement their lives and trying to like get something going um and trying to figure out the next stage of where they're going to be at in the next few years um, so yeah, just on many, many levels, I really, really loved it. Um, and I've never been hugely fond of Richard Curtis. I know you're a big four, uh, four weddings and a funeral. I'm getting the right number. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not as big on that movie, but, um, this one really brought me back around. Um, well, I mean, that's interesting, interesting cause four weddings, I think also one of its big strengths is its portrait of a friend group. Um, uh, in, in that case, um, all incredibly wealthy and uh, right. <laughs> mean, to, mean to each other. I've said that my line word that I've said multiple times is seen from a different angle for weddings and a funeral is a Whit Stillman movie. Uh, sure. um, but uh, uh, yeah, I haven't seen Notting Hill in a long time, but RIP to Roger Michelle, the director who passed yeah. away in 2021, I think. Um, but yeah, I got a very interesting filmography, some, some real winners and some real odd ones out in that filmography as well. Uh, all right. Moving on to my number five. We're in the second half of the episode now. Um, I mentioned before I used the term bad melodrama, but if you want good melodrama, you know to look no further than Douglas Sirk. So I watched a... Uh, this came out almost ago now, I think, uh, but it was a Kino Lohrer, uh Blu-ray, double set Blu-ray of two German Douglas Sirk movies, like pre before him leaving the Nazis. Uh, it was uh, To New Shores 
and La Habanera, which I think you said you've seen La Habanera. I didn't I have, like that yeah. one. I didn't like La Habanera very much, to to be honest. But um, I really liked To New Shores, uh, which is the story of. Uh, I mean, it's a German movie, and everyone's speaking German, but the characters are English. Um, and there's a uh, an English military officer who doesn't really come from means uh but he's in love with a sort of cabaret singer slash actress uh and he's about to be shipped off to australia when that's still like a you know english i mean i guess it's still part of the commonwealth or whatever but you know it's very much a colony um right penal colony at that uh, at that time um and he's being shipped off there and before he leaves he steals like 300 dollars, which is a lot more money back then uh from his rich friend by like forging a check um and then goes off to australia and then the woman he's in love with when she finds out what he did she steps up and said it was her who did it to like save him from uh uh being you know what do they call it uh, discharged and, and mm-hmm. court-martialed and all this stuff. But then she ends up going to prison and not only does she go to prison, she gets sent to the penal colony of Australia. So the real meat of the movie happens when this officer finds out that the woman he supposedly loves is in prison right next door because she took the fall for him and he has to decide between do I love this woman enough that I will save her or do I uh, let her take the fall and uh, <laughs> uh, get out with my skin intact? And um, the decision is far more difficult for him than, uh, you know, romance movie viewers would generally expect. Sure. It's, it's, it's it, the movie is full of melodrama, but it's not really a, a romance. It's more kind of a uh, uh, condemnation of this, like, uh, uh, um, striver, this ambitious, uh, uh, striver type of, uh, uh, I'm trying to think there's a number of characters like this in, in movies like Tom Ripley or whatever, who like hmm. come from nothing and will stop, stop at nothing to achieve something, even if it means hurting other people. So, uh, I'm sure like politically, there's probably something about the English that, that <laughs> the Germans were saying at the time you know but uh i don't really know all of all of that history <laughs> sure. but uh it's just a just um i'd never seen i've never seen now i've seen two but i'd never seen any of douglas sirk's german works and uh um to new shores is definitely the, the best two did you like la habanera uh not particularly um the okay, <laughs> the movie from this period the only other movie from this period i've seen of his um is called final chord though and it, that's fantastic okay um and i think you know put that out recently as well um okay. so yeah i, I want to pick up that just to have it and then um the two new shorts i just have just to give that a shot because i'm very curious about that and see yeah kino's been on a really good streak of releasing early german work by filmmakers who then went on to do stuff in america i I think they've got um a handful of silent lubich films as well that um have otherwise not been available um i have they released um many years ago uh a silent german movie that lenny riefenstahl is the star of hmm. um not the director uh i think it's called the holy mountain but don't get it confused with the uh 
what's his name? Uh, <laughs> the, oh, Jodorowsky. Yeah, don't get confused with him. Yeah. All right, I'll try. All right, team. sorry. Uh, your number five, please. Yeah, my number five is Bugsy, the Barry Levinson, Warren Beatty. Oh yeah, joint. Uh, this is a Tyler and David fave. Yeah, I, twenty dwarves. I, twenty dwarves took turns doing <laughs> handstands on the carpet. I'm coming to light the candles. That scene. <laughs> so okay, so it's like a biopic of Bugsy Malone, the gangster. Um, I think it looks up. That is his last name, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, that so Warren Beatty been wanting to make the movie based on his life. Wait, for no, a while. it's Bugsy Siegel. Yes, thank you. I, I was like, sorry, Bugsy Malone is the um, like kids gangster movie, right? Yes, you're right. <laughs> um yeah bugsy siegel is his name bugsy malone is yeah jody foster and young scott bayo yeah being little kid gangsters which is another fun movie <laughs> which i actually haven't seen that but, oh, uh, man. it's yeah. a blast um but i guess bugsy like you corrected me on whatever i said earlier no i, I appreciate it and say yeah i didn't no, want to uh i didn't want to just leave that hanging um so yeah, yeah it's a biopic of his life um his kind of like big legend is he was one of the founders of Las Vegas, which the movie definitely plays into. If you really look into that, he apparently like wasn't um, as like yeah, I have really into that, that yeah. but it makes for like great imagery of just them building this casino in the middle of nowhere. Um, and it's just got a stacked cast um, that Benning is in it. That's where she and Beatty met. Um, apparently he saw her audition probably not audition tape they might have actually filmed it and was like i love her i'm gonna marry her and james toback who wrote the screenplay was like i didn't think he was actually going to marry her um <laughs> but it's got her in it she's amazing uh harvey cocktail ben kingsley elliot gould playing like the saddest elliot gould usually he's much like happier and uh savvier guy here he's uh, like he a is, big dumb yeah. lug but he's so good in it um and yeah it just plays into um, that, like yeah no go ahead um, I, it's been a long time since I've watched it, but Ben Single, Ben, sorry, Ben Kingsley is uh, Meyer Lansky, right? Uh, that feels right offhand. I didn't take note of character names. Um, but I think, wasn't there a more recent movie where Harvey Keitel played Meyer Lansky? Oh, gosh. Weird uh, coincidence there. Yeah. Um, but it's very much like a continuation of like the key Warren Beatty theme, which is like whatever you might say about. Beatty's more overt politics in real life. His like thesis in film is that whoever is in charge, America is just a very weird place run by the weirdest people who are in many regards, very stupid. And like the fact that Beatty really understands his screen persona, I think better than a lot of stars do because he understands that he's at his best when he's a little doofy. Um, it's the kind of thing that like, I wish Ben Affleck understood a little bit better about himself because like so many of the films, especially the ones he directs himself in, Ben Affleck's like so much the man, but Ben Affleck's at his best when he's being a doof. And if he just take, took the Warren Beatty <laughs> model, he'd be like so much further along. Um, but Beatty, like, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's solid comfort to like have bedded more women than any other man in America. <laughs> to, like <laughs> then you could just like be a doof on screen and not have to like big, make a big show of being a star all the time. But the fact that he, you know, throughout his career was constantly willing to just be the dumbest guy in the room is so great. Um, but yeah, that, that scene that I alluded to the, like, I'm going to light the candle scene. So it's this big, like amalgamation of concerns in Bugsy's life where like he's been ignoring his family for too long. There's some business interests that have literally come to his door to like get settled. And he's trying to balance all these things, you know, and put on his daughter's birthday party. And it is like pound for pound, 
if I were to make like a top 10 scenes of all time in cinema history, this, that scene might make it because it's so relentlessly funny and like nerve wracking in a weird way. Like if you've ever been, I mean, we've all been in situations where like, we're trying to balance so many things in our lives just generally and have it all condensed in this one scene that goes on like just a little bit too long, but in the best way. Um, I just, I could not stop laughing at that scene and it was so well-constructed um directed by barry levinson um whose work i don't know that i'm like a gigantic barry levinson fan or anything probably very hit or miss for me if i were to really look his filmography um and it was one that apparently Beatty like was afraid he would have to direct himself because he couldn't find anybody to kind of take the job but um really kind of came together in the best way um i saw this on 35 at the los filas looked great great afternoon at the movies uh all right um next up for me okay so uh i have long been a big fan of the movie the fabulous baker boys oh sure uh and for some reason i don't know why i just never thought to go on imdb and look it up i was only movie that steve clovis had directed that he just went back to screenwriting and became like the harry potter most of the harry potter movies it never occurred to me that he had directed a second movie. Um, uh, but I luckily, um, I guess luckily for me, James Conn passed away and it gave me a reason to uh, <laughs> watch some James Conn movies. And so 1993, I think 1993's flesh and bone um, is uh, an incredible discovery. Um, as a, as a, I mean, I, I used the word neo-noir earlier. This is another like a uh, sort of rural neo-noir um uh one of the oh, very few movies that Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan made together um uh obviously there's inner space and there's this is there one other i feel like there's one other that i'm missing oh god i can tell you offhand but anyway um but i think they did they they met making inner space right am i right on that uh like that story right i think i remember reading yeah. that cuz they showed that yeah. in a t- recent tcm fest and so i read up on it that feels right um where was it? So I've, I, I've said it like if I've described this Baker boys as being like a Tom Waits song come to life. So I guess flesh and bone is maybe like a Chris Christopherson song or a Tom nice. Van Zant song, uh, come to life. Uh, Dennis Quaid, uh, well, the movie starts when Dennis Quaid is a boy and James Conn is his father. Who's a, uh, criminal who, um, uh, his, his thing is that he, gets his son to play uh, a lost kid who gets taken in by families. And then the kid, once all the families are asleep, helps James Conn, you know, clean their house out while they're asleep of all their like valuables and, and stuff. So it starts with that. And then it flashes to the present, you know, the 1993 present where Dennis Quaid has, has gone straight and is just living this life where he is in charge of, uh, he owns a company that um, places vending machines and, uh, uh, you know, condom machines and all kinds of stuff in various like restaurants and truck stops and gas stations all over the like most rural possible parts of like North Texas. I can't remember exactly where um, it's supposed to take place. So it's very much, a, a you know, a, a neo-Western and a neo-noir. Uh, and then he meets this young woman played by Meg Ryan, who is, uh, running away from her abusive husband and they kind of like take up together and, and she just joins him on the road. Uh, 
uh, that's the fun part of the beginning. Then James Conn comes back and he's like, um, a lot of the movies, even when James Conn, I think we talked about this on the James Conn episode, even when he'd play like criminals before it's, there's not that many movies where he plays the bad guy, you know, sure. I mean like Dogville, obviously he's pretty, uh, when he, when he shows up, but he's a mean son of a bitch in <laughs> flesh and bone. And it's a great, he's clearly having a blast playing it. Um, but also this is, this is Meg Ryan absolutely at the height of her, of her powers, um, uh, as well. And just, uh, so Steve Clovis is like flowery, but not in a, an annoying or self-congratulatory way dialogue mixed with, uh, Dennis Quaid, Meg Ryan and James Caan, all kind of playing like various archetypes. Um, oh, I also didn't mention the other, like the fourth leg of the table, uh, actor wise, a very young Gwyneth Paltrow plays a, uh, a young con artist who, uh, who ends up, uh, sort of, I guess in the modern day segment, like James Conn tries to take her under his wing. So she becomes like the replacement for Dennis Quaid, but she's maybe got some tricks up her sleeve, uh, uh, of, of her own, uh, just a delightful, like just whiskey soaked genre, uh, movie with, uh, a quartet of great uh, American movie stars at their height. Excellent. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think it's on it. Paramount Plus. I think it's actually on Amazon Prime as well. For oh, maybe that's where I saw it. That's services saw it. that people actually subscribe to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Uh, uh, Star Trek Discovery fans and the Good Fight fans uh, might disagree with you. Um, no, I think weirdly Paramount Plus is like disproportionately subscribed to compared to like cultural relevance because it has like Yellowstone. Yellowstone. Yeah. yeah the most watched those, TV like, show in America. Yeah. Major dad show. And so that all the dads in America figured out how to sign up for Paramount Plus. Yeah. <laughs> Yellowstone. Um, yeah. I remember you talking about it in the con episode and I wanted to see it and then I forgot about it. And now I'm glad to have the reminder. So glad it made that big an impression. Yeah. Um, my number four uh is the only film i saw in a retrospective that both went on in new york and la because janice films uh kind of organized it and was able to distribute it to several theaters across the country um despite so i was in new york and la for both uh retrospectives but i only managed to catch one film between the two uh it's called the moon has risen uh directed by kinyo tanaka as a retrospective of all the films that she directed um being the only i think uh female director who made more than like one film in this period in japan this is from 1955 um so comparable situation to like ida lupino in the u.s or jacqueline audrey in france of being like the one woman working in the studio system in all these cases all these women were also actresses which is like the only way they could get a career no. that big that high like, like when you tall it's just like Lenny Riefenstahl. There's no difference between those situations. Um, this I'm really glad I caught this film though. Um, it's got a screenplay by Yasujiro Ozu, um, co-written by anyway. Um, and like a lot of his films, it's about people making marital arrangements for a young woman who's also just trying to figure out her own life. Um, unlike those films, uh, the lead 
the main female characters are a lot uh, spikier and more lively. Um, it's not like the women who are very resigned to their place in life. They very much have opinions on what they want to be doing with their lives and very like loud, boisterous personalities. And just, it was very enjoyable to see a different side of Japanese society than you would see in an Ozu or let alone like a Naruse or um, a Mizuguchi movie, which are even more downbeat than Ozu's films. Um, just to see you know, ordinary people falling in love. It's a very sweet, very romantic movie. It kind of takes a turn towards more overt melodrama towards the end, which um, is somewhat of a kind of tonal departure, but um, enough, there'd been enough kind of goodwill built up with the characters that I was kind of willing to follow them anywhere by that point in the movie. And yeah, I'm really excited to check out the rest of her films. I'm hoping that they'll come to the Criterion channel at some point because Janice had put them out. Um and super glad that I caught this. I, it was a, just a digital retrograde, which usually I don't, you know, roll out for DCPs. But um, as I told Julie on the way to the movie, like sometimes you just got to roll out because the only time I can be sure I'll carve out time for it. Streaming just becomes like an endless pit of constantly trying to ke- catch up with things. But um, yeah, really glad that Janice is putting this out and that there's just enough conversation around female directors that like this otherwise mm-hmm. minor figure in Japanese history becomes interesting because it's like, well, she was the only woman to work at the time. So it's interesting to see what she's uh, doing. Even if it's not like, I wouldn't say this is as good as like what Naurase or Ozu were doing at the time. It's just a, a different angle on Japanese cinema than we might have seen otherwise. So kudos to society as well. <laughs> we're doing great. Everything's yeah. going great. Oh yeah. Uh, future's so bright. We got to wear shades. <laughs> Uh, all right, moving on to my number three, and here's where I slotted in my uh, one Godard, mm. and the one that was the biggest discovery, the biggest surprise to me was 1985's Hail Mary. Sure. Um, uh, I don't know. Sometimes with uh, uh, with with someone like Godard, I start to get because you know it's in my nature to doubt myself and beat myself up i i i I think with something like hail mary like um oh am i just responding to hail mary because it's one of his more like narratively straightforward accessible films and then i just step back and being like hail mary only seems like an accessible movie if you spent two months watching godard movies (laughs) um it's still very very uh godard um in its provocation um in it's uh uncomfortable comedy not like comedy not like cringe i'm not talking about like yeah, yeah. you know uh the british office or whatever but i'm saying like uh comedy that comes from like the threat of violence sometimes like totally. and that the is it uh i'm already forgetting is it gabriel the angel gabriel is like a short-tempered brute yeah <laughs> like, that's 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 so funny to me um <clears throat> But also, and I, I think I said this on our Godard episode, um, just shot for shot, one of the most gorgeous movies that he's that he's made. Um, it's it, it's it's lovely. The uh, uh, I think I watched it on Canopy. It was uh, HD transfer. looked looked fantastic. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I feel like it's not one that I've. Um, I had heard much about it didn't seem to come up um when i when i heard about him and uh heard about his movies that i hadn't seen but um yeah big uh so i guess that's why it's on here as a as a surprise i know there is a um 
there's a Kino Blu-ray of it. Um, uh, Cohen that, Film Collection, technically, but oh, Cohen you know, okay. distributes the Cohen stuff these days. Okay. Um, then I think if I if I log into my account on Kino, I think it's probably still in my card. I've been like considering pulling the trigger. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, I, re- I mean, I recommend it. I have it, and it's not only yeah a great transfer and you know higher bit rate than you get on Canopy streaming. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's got a great commentary track on it too. So that's well worth listening to. Yeah, uh, I'm I mean, assuming the Blu-ray also has the Book of Mary. The yeah, uh, of course, uh, it has you know. it as also like just part of the feature. So you can chapter yeah. skip to Hail Mary if you like, but when you hit play, you'll get both. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, not a lot to add from what we said with the Godard episode, but it um, it's, I think I said at the time is still true. My favorite of his eighties films. And I think probably the most accomplished and like has a very spiritual uh, tone to it, even beyond like its subject matter. It's like has a, an energy running through it that I don't really feel in his other films from the period that I think is really effective. And I think condenses his themes that he was concerned with in the period in a more mature and evolved way, um, befitting the subject matter. And even though the Catholic yeah. church didn't agree with that, um, I, I think he <laughs> approached it with all due respect in his own way of showing that. Yeah. I, remember, I think that, we had this conversation on the Godard episode where I was saying with the point you just made that I was like, this doesn't actually seem like it's that like blasphemous or anti-religious. And then you were like, and so I was like, I don't know what were people objecting to? And then you sort of reminded me that it's like, people don't like to see the Virgin Mary, like full frontal nudity for half a movie and riding around. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Not, not into that. The Catholic church, they'll come around someday. I'm sure. (laughs) They're famous for involving with the times. Um, my number three, very different scene. Uh, the Shaw Brothers film, The Boxer from Shantung. Uh, so Arrow put out this very kick-ass box set of Shaw Brothers films that I have not worked my way much more forward um, on since seeing The Boxer from Shantung, um, and which I really need to get back to after you know my yearly catch-up is done. Uh, this film totally kicks ass uh most especially it has a finale that very clearly inspired the end of kill bill volume one where it's just one guy against a ever churning sea of people inside this tea house you know i mean they couldn't afford as great uh size of a restaurant or as elaborate of weaponry as quentin tarantino could for kill bill but it has the same sense to it of like this guy just keeps getting like knives thrown into him and like bones broken but just keeps going and it's so cool and it's so great because like i mean like the rest of the movie building up to that of course he's just like defeating every enemy with not too much struggle you know the larger guys kind of put up a bigger fight and kind of give more difficulty but for the most part he's just destroying everybody so this the final fight i think starts with his like arm getting broken or something but then he just like keeps fighting guys and so it's like he's like uh slightly hobbled but obviously not in a way that's going to prevent him from getting the job done um i'm struggling to remember the specifics of other set pieces because this one goes on for like 20 or 25 minutes and obviously it comes at the end of the film is so commanding but the rest of the film has that same degree of energy and the same kind of command of the action language um it was directed by this guy cheng che um who had been directing movies in, like off and on since 1949 his career really took off with the rise of kung fu movies in like late 60s um 
and which I hope there's more films from him in the Shaw Brothers set. Arrow just put out a volume two that I need to pick up. Um, but yeah, I totally love the boxer Shantong. Uh, all right. I said at the beginning that I was uh, reserving just one slot for movies I saw at TCM Fest. Um, anyone with a long enough memory of our TCM Fest wrap-up might be able to guess which one I picked. But uh, it's William Wyler's 1933 Counselor at Law. Oh, sure. Which um, was the movie. So uh, now I'm forgetting what the award is they give every year. But um, Leonard Moulton was the award recipient. And I guess... If you're getting the TCM Fest award, you get to program a movie. So he, it was it's the uh, Robert Osborne award, isn't it? Oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So he, um, uh, so Leonard Malton, um, uh, it was a great night. Like I'd never, I've been to TCM Fest for you know, this is you know since 2016 or so, but I'd never been to one of the Robert Osborne screens. I'm not sure if you've been, but no. it starts. There's a whole a whole long time before the movie starts um hours uh, <laughs> not quite but maybe like 40 minutes <laughs> yeah, yeah so um first warren Beatty came out and introduced leonard malton and then leonard malton came up and gave a whole speech and then like to thunderous applause he starts to step on the stage and then he like runs back up to the podium he was like oh yeah i forgot i'm supposed to introduce council of law <laughs> so then he introduced the movie he picked um and uh you know maybe maybe the magic of uh, of that setting uh informed me but i was uh again i guess with part of the reason and i keep coming to this idea of surprise there's so many william wyler movies and so many of them are good and i was surprised that i hadn't heard this that much about counselor law before like with hail mary it doesn't seem to be in the top tier of william wyler movies that get discussed i don't know maybe i'm just not having the right conversations uh but um this is uh, so 1933 pre-code uh, movie in which John Barrymore plays um, uh, a a lawyer who kind of r- represents. He's sort of like I guess in modern day this is a cheap comparison, but he's sort of a Saul Goodman type that he like sure. represents the lower classes and is like fighting for the rights of the lower classes, but also is like willing to like find loopholes and ways around the rules um or in some cases just out outright break the rules and break the law um to get his his job done um and uh uh and and so the the premise of so the movie is it's all one day in his office and in his office and waiting room and it just has like three sets there's like i guess four because his office is a little like antechamber like where his secretary sits but it's basically mm-hmm. his office the waiting room and the elevator bank outside the office because it's in this like high rise um and it's all very like these beautiful big art deco sets um but it all takes place there and it almost it's the movie is almost like a farcical tragedy because it's like it moves so fast and like there is, you know, you've got the elevator bank that goes into the waiting room and then that goes into the secretary's room and then into Barrymore's office. But then he has a side exit out to the elevator bank. So like you literally have this whole circle and people like coming and going um, different clients, but also like he's maybe going to get found out for something he did. And the tension keeps building and we know he did something wrong, but we kind of want him to get away with it because he's our guy and he's a scrapper. And he is also, so in that way, it um, reminded me of uh, uncut gems Mm -hmm. um, or another James Conn movie that I watched this year, the gambler uh, where things keep getting worse and worse for our main character. And you're like, how, 
how is he going to get out of this? Uh, is he going to get out of this? Um, also like Uncut Gems, not to the extent of Uncut Gems, but um, uh, it is, I don't think the word Jewish is ever used, I think, in counselor law, mm. but it's clear that he's, that's who he's supposed to be. He's supposed to come from, because I think they use, they say like the old country or something like that. Right. Uh, um, or like the slum or whatever he, like, I think, and maybe he like changed his name and is like made something respectable in this world. But like his Jewishness is, um, is a part of, uh, why he fights for the people he fights for because of, uh, um, oh yeah. There's also like a whole thing with like communist, there's like a Marxist revolutionary who's, uh, who's, uh, representing, uh, who's from his old neighborhood. Uh, there's so much going on in the movie at all times. Uh, and I came around, I was building up to a point, but, um, <laughs> it just uh, has this, um, relentless, like piling on and movement and forward momentum, but like also this deep, deep emotion. Um, and then if we could give out like, if the, I wish I don't actually wish this, but what if like TCM Fest had like categories like Can does or whatever, and you could give like best actor and best actress to people who are long dead, but uh, a low key contender in that case for uh, uh, supporting actress is Isabel Jewell, who plays uh, the receptionist, not his, not his secretary with the receptionist who sits in the in the waiting room and anytime she's on screen she never stops talking because she's <laughs> answering phones and transferring calls and talking but also carrying on with her story about what she got up to last night but then also making sure to like talk about like what am i gonna have for lunch lunch today and like placing an order with the like errand boy who goes in to get the lunch it's just this incredible non-stop uh hilarious performance um that kind of uh, also like sets the first, I think she's the first character you meet in the movie, if I remember correctly. And it does that her like rapid fire dialogue kind of does set the pace for this movie. That's not going to let up uh, until it's like big, huge, emotional, melodramatic ending. Nice. Yeah. It's a movie I'd like to revisit because I only seen it once many, many years ago and probably would benefit from the energy of an audience. Cause I, remember not really like i remember liking it all right but not to the extent that you do but you're talking it up got me curious to check it out again yeah i saw it at the american legion uh theater um which i was lucky enough to get to early enough that i had one of those seats in front of like i I had all the leg room in the world you know there's like there's like the two blocks of seats and and uh uh yeah i said that the front of the back block which means i had all the leg room i love that yeah Right. And it was on film too, um, as I think Can't everything at the American Legion, I think, was on film this year. Yeah, I think the only two things I saw there were this and Key Largo, and they were both on film. Yeah, you know, yeah. The only thing I saw there was Dinner at Eight, and that was on film. So, okay, we'll just go with our experiences and assume that goes for everybody. Yeah, <laughs> like all white men. Um, <laughs> uh, my number two, also something I saw on film um, as part of uh, well. Each January, uh, the American Cinematheque does January Giallo month. So each Monday, they're doing it right now. Um, they show um, some, not necessarily rare, but maybe a little off the beaten path Giallo film. So I saw The Perfume of the Lady in Black, um, which was not a movie I'd ever heard of before this. Um, and certainly hadn't heard of the director, Francisco Borelli, who had only, who's an actor who only directed one other movie. 
and then was so frustrated but trying to make these two movies that he, he just gave up film entirely and became a painter um and i can understand why premium with the lady back is a super weird movie so it's on the surface it's kind of a typical giallo movie of like a woman who's like am i going insane is there a vast conspiracy against me is there some supernatural presence um etc cetera, etc cetera. what's distinguished about this film from the outset is that uh the main character played by mimsy farmer isn't like helpless or sheltered there's no like you know she's has a sort of tragic backstory but it isn't wrapped up in like sexual shame or she's like a dutiful housewife or whatever who's like being driven insane by her being sh- uh i'm trying to say like being kind of shut in um mm-hmm. she's a manager at a chemical factory she's living her own life she has a boyfriend but kind of on her terms and they have like a lively sexual relationship and like she's a strong independent woman of the 70s um who begins to see a series of strange visions random objects from her past kind of appearing where they shouldn't um people seeming to show up who were long dead all that kind of classic like psychological terror kind of stuff um and so as it progresses it's like is this a conspiracy am i going insane or is there something much stranger going on and really like honestly it's hard to say by the end of the film which of those three or if there's some fourth thing going on that you can't quite put into words at the center it's kind of tapping in the same vein as like a rosemary's baby but is much less literal about where the threats are coming from it's very it's very dreamlike and it has a dream logic to it that amounts to not giving you an answer ultimately into what's going on the final scene is a complete departure from everything we've seen before but which just emphasize just further underscores is how unusual and strange whatever is going on in the movie is and it's just so compelling to watch it's beautifully shot um weirdly like the print they showed wasn't fading the colors were very strong but it had like all these kind of like weird blurrings in it which kind of like added to the strange like tenor of the film um so i'd be curious to watch it on blu-ray and see how it feels in a more mm-hmm. like solid format but it made for a very uh strange and very really really kind of painterly night at the movies um and is now like not only up there with like Suspiria as one of my favorite Giallo films. And I know Giallo heads somewhere. I'm sure there's someone listening who will insist that G- Suspiria isn't a Giallo film. I don't care. Um, <laughs> I do care, but I don't know if it counts or not. Not only one of my favorite, let's say Italian horror films, of the 1970s, but one of my favorite horror films period from any era. Um, it really taps into just a strange, horrific energy that it, I, I liked seeing movies where it's not it stops being about an individual person and start starts being about just like the nature of being afraid of life in some ways um yeah big big fan of this one all right we're on to my number one and uh oh i'm about to live up to the title of this show um if you haven't felt alienated by my pretensions in the past uh Get i ready. 2022 is the year that i took my first step into the realm of uh jean-marie straub and danielle Hillet. jean-marie straub died recently and so the first one this first straub Hillet film i ever saw is my number one film discovery <laughs> of 2022 it's 1975's moses and aaron or moses und aaron because uh they're german or french german um 
uh, and the movie is in in German. Uh, it's an opera. It's an adaptation of of an opera, hmm. and um, is presented as an as an opera. The characters sing all the dialogue. Um, but uh, you know, I, to compare it to Counselor at Law, which I talked about, this relentless forward momentum and the speed, the Strobe thing, and especially in. And by the way, listeners, tell me if I'm saying it wrong. I don't know. <laughs> like Straub, I'm okay with. I know enough German that it's probably Straub, but Huile, I don't know how you say her name. Um, anyway, uh, their thing is about like it, it, more rigor, more. It, I wouldn't call their movies, wouldn't necessarily call Moses and Aaron slow, but it has a rhythm to it that is like static shot beautifully composed by the way static shot that you will come back and forth to uh every once in a while a high angle shot every once in a while you'll get a slow pan which feels like when you're used to seeing the same three shots in repetition over and over again when when you return to that shot and then it suddenly pans to the left you're like holy shit like <laughs> um uh i reminded what's the um oh shit what's the Chantal ackerman short um where the camera keeps spinning around her bedroom Oh, is it uh, uh, Hotel Monterey? Um, is that what it's called? Um, it doesn't sound familiar, but uh, it's just the camera moving. And but at one point, it stops and starts to move the other way, and right. it feels like the most dramatic, crazy right. thing, craziest thing ever could happen. And that's like Moses and Aaron has a couple of those big moments with the camera panning out, panning left to right, or as happens later in the movie, just cutting to black and having lengthy sections where you're just hearing things and not seeing anything um and uh i, I talked about council of law building up to this big dramatic ending moses and Aaron does so as well but through this steady march forward you know mm. it's 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 not a high a uh, fast-paced film in any in any in any way but uh it's in three acts um the first act uh is moses and aaron who's his brother trying to convince the jews to leave uh, and go and flee into the desert with them the second act takes this, moses isn't in the second act almost at all it takes place almost entirely while he's up on the mountain and aaron's sort of in charge of the 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 israelites um uh and then when it gets to like the the famous like golden calf and and the sort of uh debauchery it the movie goes nuts by its own like by its own standards, it goes nuts, but you you've been so disciplined and, and adjusted and conditioned to those standards right. that just something like, even though it's a very austere shot, like, um, there's, there's a, like, there's a shot, like a guy runs through the frame on fire. That's pretty, it's like so crazy. Yeah. Um, there's, there's some, uh, uh, I don't know, you, you you know, read the Bible or just watch the movie. If you want to know uh, what happens. And then the third act, the very short third act uh, happens when Moses comes back down and is uh, uh, furious by what uh, Aaron has allowed to happen while he was, while he was gone. But uh, it was really great as just an entrance to um, I've seen a few more Strobele films now, and I will watch a few more this year. Um, uh, but this is a great, starting point because uh it's very academic like i said and rigorous and disciplined and all of those things that um i've come to associate with them but it also uh achieves a surprising amount of drama and and spectacle 
so yeah, this is, I, I, like I said before, I really focused on the word discovery and putting together this list. Right. And so I don't really know if Moses and Aaron best new film to me that I ever saw, but it felt like the biggest discovery to me because it's uh, a, a filmmaking team um, that I had heard about for years and um uh to to step one foot into their world and for it to be this uh engrossing and, and impactful uh was a big discovery cool right, right on yeah it's one that i've wanted to see for some time and hope to get to see well i'm pretty sure that one's on canopy i mean a lot of the like a lot of their films are you can rent and stream through the grasshopper website mm. um but I think Moses and Aaron is one of the ones that's because uh, that grasshopper, unless listeners tell me if, if I'm wrong, I don't think grasshoppers thing is available as an app on Apple TV. Apparently they have a Roku app, but that's like it. Um, so I've just been, when I watch these movies through grasshopper, I just airplay them to my TV and it's fine. Um, but uh, let me know if there's a way to watch the grasshopper stuff on the Apple TV. feels like there should be, but uh, I think Moses and Aaron is just uh regular ass streaming good old ass streaming yeah <laughs> um all right well very much a departure for my number one um which as i was going through things seemed obvious and yet unusual but uh it is a film we just discussed on a patreon or maybe where i'm soon to discuss depending on what order they get released in peyton reads down with love um yeah it hasn't come out yet but yeah this is a film that I've been wanting to see pretty much since it came out, just never got around to it kind of thing. Um, and I'm glad that it took me some time to get to because the films that it is be wrong to say parodying um, more in conversation with in the same way that like Shaun of the Dead is yes on the surface, a parody of zombie films, but is also a very earnest engagement with the same kind of tenor and it very much has the same thematic concerns down with love is kind of pitched as a parody of the uh, sex comedies of the late 50s and 1960s, particularly the Rock Hudson Doris Day ones and really Tony Randall's kind of the third leg there. Tony Randall does show up in this movie, which is a delight, Um, but also just of the whole larger tapestry of the era. And now that I'm much more familiar with those um, films and the pleasures therein, I'm glad that I waited this long to see it both so i can get their specific reference points recognize that david hyde pierce is pretty much doing a spot on tony randall impression in it um but also because like i said it really is in conversation with those movies and really an extension of them and looking beneath the surface of its very slavish devotion to recreating the aesthetics of the era um cinematographer jeff cronin with um use what was then kind of a new digital color timing process that um, had just kind of been explored in mainstream films to really get the look of the film, this film just right. And they do like all these great split screen effects that are kind of building on the kind of sexually charged things they would do with Rock Hudson and Doris Day um, back in the day. Um, but even beyond all that stuff and a really whip start, smart screenplay by uh, Eve alert that can't be how you pronounce your name but it's basically spelled like alert but with an h after the a uh and dennis drake who are these like tv writers never really went on to do much else um which is unfortunate uh but yeah whip start screenplay but even beneath like the surface of all that it's really 
a film that becomes about the assumptions we make about ourselves, about the era we live in, about other people and the way everything fits into society. And, you know, in a more overt way, it's undercutting the the assumptions that we make about like the 1950s or 60s um, sexual culture and what women could do or were capable of back then. But because it's so thorough in excoriating that kind of then becomes about the assumptions we make about any era and about the assumptions we can make about the present era as well. And so it's a really excessively smart film that I'm really surprised made it through the mainstream uh, system. Is a 20, 20th Century Fox release. This wasn't like a art house picture. Mm-hmm. It was in mainstream wide release theaters and um they lost a good deal of money on it i'm not surprised because yeah unless you know those films there wouldn't be any immediate reason to want to see it and unless you're willing to watch a romantic comedy that um is systematically dismantling the reasons why you would want to see a romantic comedy (laughs) while still being like a total gas like it's a total pleasure to watch it's super funny um very well performed and occasionally very sweet um so delivers on all that but is also just a really sharp uh reflection on that it's interesting that this came out in the same year as like uh looney tunes back in action or kill bill like there are all these movies that were kind of like these pop art revisitations and explorations of um mid-century mainstream kind of lower class if you will art um but doing them in really sharp ways and updating them to kind of explore the modern era as well. Um, yeah. Weird, weird early Bush era um, <laughs> tendency to do, but um, this was as good as those films, if not better. I was really, really glad I finally caught around to it. Well, yeah. Listeners can hear my thoughts on it. If they uh, subscribe to the Patreon, patreon.com slash battleship pretension is coming up in a week or two uh, that episode, but I will say uh, what I will say now is um you said like you couldn't imagine any reason people would go see it but the thing is we used to have movie stars in this country that is true and so the thing is like renee zabiger was huge yeah. uh at, at at this time this is after chicago and the same year as cold mountain and after obviously after bridget jones like renee zabiger was a, a a big name that that um uh you know used to be able to get things made if not apparently get butts and seats for yeah. down with love i'd I didn't know because I don't know. Look, this is a whole other topic that we could do as an episode someday. I don't care how much money any movie ever made. I'll ne- I never will. I know you can give me the argument why it's important, but I will never be able to care enough to pay attention to the box office. <laughs> but there's just been a lot of talk with Babylon and uh, the Fablemans and Avatar of like, yeah. what did what do box office receipts say about movies? And like, I'm sure plenty, um, but I have never cared. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a larger discussion that maybe we should do an episode on sometime. Yeah. But it also just like gives you the pulse of the culture and what people want to see and what the industry and the ways in which industry will support things. Um, you know, release patterns and the legs and ability for movies to stay in theaters anymore. I think I have a big a lot to do with that as well. All right. Well, uh, we did. It. This is a great way to kick off our look back at. 2022 we'll be putting a pause on that and talking about other things uh for a few weeks but um this was a nice little uh amuse bouche absolutely for that um uh i was hoping because i know you're a big cloudy with a chance of meatballs fan 
I was hoping you were going to say, what's an amuse-bouche? Which is my favorite lines from that movie. uh, When, when uh, it's like when I forget the main character's name now, but when he's giving his like big speech, like rally the town speech at the end. And he says like, if you think that was bad, what's happened so far was just an amuse-bouche. And like one voice (laughs) in the crowd goes, what's an (laughs) amuse-bouche? One of those things that they like hired Patton Oswalt to write a line for yeah. to fill out. Yeah. Uh, but it always makes me laugh. I need to watch that movie again. Uh, Absolutely. All right. Uh, well, you can find us at battleshipretention.com. That's also, where you can find a link to the GoFundMe to help Tyler and his family with their medical bills. That's pinned to the top of the homepage, battleshipretention.com. Go check that out, please. Um, you can, uh, let's see, email me at, david at battleshippretension.com follow me on twitter at davy pretension check out my other podcast uh the one where i met your mother where my wife and i watch an episode of friends and an episode of how i met your mother every week uh we're in the for how many mother fans like me we're in the midst of a great stretch of season four uh and we watched um the uh the episode the fight which is uh, uh a great episode and also stars a um uh, low-key David and Tyler favorite uh, comedic uh, character actor Will Sasso. Will Sasso is a, a psychotic bartender. <laughs> um, so that's a... Uh, Don't say that but, name too fast. Uh, Will Sasso, yeah. Um, all right, so uh, check all that out. Scott, where can people find you should you uh, care for them too? Uh, you know, Twitter, go to request to follow. Um, Letterboxd. I'm trying to get back in the habit of at least jotting down some thoughts about the movies I see. So I have... No, don't forget everything about them. Um, and I think of anything else that I have going on, but probably not much. Yeah, that'll do. All right. Well, uh, thanks for filling in. Oh, anytime. Um, thanks for being almost as good as Tyler. Uh, thank you at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.